Welcome to First Generation Burn, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. Episode 62, Season 7. Today we have an awesome episode for you. I'm talking to my friend Alexandra Cuerto, Ali for short. She's a director, filmmaker, writer. She directed the excellent documentary film Ulam Main Dish, which explores the rise of Philippine X cuisine, available to watch on Hulu and Amazon Prime right now. And she just released a book called Amboy, Recipes from the Filipino-American Dream, with Chef Alvin Kalin, founder of the world-famous Egg Slut. We talk about her growing up in the OC, getting her first job in the film industry as George Clooney's assistant, and how that put her on the path towards a critically acclaimed film and launched her career. And I'm just going to stop talking because I want you to listen to this. It's a great time. Uh, Before we begin, though, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and drop a review and make sure you're registered to vote. Your life depends on it. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Ali Cuerto. All right. So what are we talking about? Fashion week? (laughs) Stupid shit at fashion week? I don't know. (laughs) We're talking about our lives pre-pandemic. Oh, my God. When was that? That was February, January? Feels like 20 years ago. I was young then. <laughs> I feel like I've aged eight years. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Like, like this administration, you know. For, for real, well. For real, for real. Yeah, we could talk about that fly later. <laughs> the fly that broke the internet. If anything, I just, I'm, I'm going to have <laughs> a right... That fly just got an agent, I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> that fly has a publicist now. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet it does. Um, so, uh, Ali Cuerdo... Welcome to First Generation Burden. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. I'm your burden for tonight. <laughs> Mutual. Oh, damn. You're hey. already starting the drink. I love that. I uh, mean, <laughs> it's five o'clock everywhere. So, <laughs> uh, For the listeners, uh, you are a filmmaker, director, your film, Ulam, about Filipino cuisine. And I've seen it. It's a beautiful film uh, that's you. available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Um, and also, it's, a, it's available free to watch on Amazon Prime, I think. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, which is great. So, And we just got renewed. Did I tell you? We got renewed for another two years on Hulu, which is awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's actually... So I think it happened, a little story behind it. It happened because they were looking for films for Asian Pacific Heritage Month. And I guess, right, there's still so little Asian content. So they were right. like, oh, do you guys want to participate? And we're like, of course. And so all of these films were spotlighted for Asian Pacific Heritage Month. And we were the number two film of the month. And we were so surprised. And we were like, oh, who was the number one film? And they were like, Parasite. <laughs> get the hell out of here. So we were the number two film on Hulu after Parasite. Huh. And so they were like, oh. People really want to watch this documentary about Filipino food. <laughs> right. It's that, uh, it's that egg slut energy I, I and that GP it energy. Is. It is. And also, like, you know, when you have a long day during 2020, you just want to come <laughs> home to something comforting and Filipino food is that. <laughs> you just want to see someone just slicing up some ribs, just, like, beautifully I'm plating it. Slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> smell the Philippines. (laughs) No, I mean, so we were so stoked because they were like, hey, your film's doing great on our platform. Right. Data, data. Let's 
let's keep it on. So. I love that. Well, we're going to jump into that. I, I would love for you to start and the way we start every podcast by telling us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. And also this will be coming out very soon in the middle of uh, Filipino History Month. So yeah, right on time. Awesome. Um, well, my name is Alexandra. Some people call me Ali Cuerdo and I am a Gosh, what do I do? Writer, director, filmmaker, uh, author, just published a book, um, and kind of all around crazy person. And uh, I'm from uh, Orange County originally. Anyone know the OC? Uh, I'm from the Asian part. Um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and now I live kind of between LA and New York and, and uh, I'm trying to... Um, bring our faces and our stories to the big screen. Are you in New York right now? I am. I am. Even though it looks like LA behind me. I'm it's so LA for the listener. Uh, you do have uh, a very West coast looking plant behind you and also <laughs> a sky poster. <laughs> you know, it's even better than a sky poster. It's a poster of the ocean. Cause that's what kind of person I am. <laughs> oh my I'm God. that Asian. I'm like, <laughs> just be a little bit more like, I don't know if you saw the film Ingrid goes West. I've seen the poster. I've never seen the film. I've seen the okay. key art. The thumbnail. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You're like, I studied the key art. Um, such a designer. Never, <laughs> never, never not designing. Um, anyways, there's, it's a whole joke about Instagram, basically. That's all Ingrid Goes West is, is a huge joke about Instagram. Oh, it's really? Great. It's all just taking photos in front of the California Dreaming Mural yes. that, my, that my boy Ricardo did. <laughs> Wait, really? Amazing. Yeah, yeah it's my friend, uh, uh, Ricardo Gonzalez. He's been on this podcast too, um, but he's he's great. He's he's down in Durango, Mexico right now. And he's an a, amazing muralist. But I'm like, dude, that mural is like, it's it's constantly in my feed. Like, I just don't know iconic. how that makes you feel. <laughs> yeah, it's iconic now. Um, so for the listener, we, we you and I know each other. Uh, we were on a panel uh, for the Sorry Sorry fam uh, yes. for, the, uh, for a Philippine X panel. I think it was a year ago over at the Spotify headquarters over at yeah. World Trade. At Spotify. That's where we met. Yeah, that was a, that was a dope panel talking about identity mm-hmm. and a beautifully moderated. And um, yeah, it was such an enjoyable time. I thought everyone really contributed. Also, um, uh, I thought you contributed like such great energy to the group as well as like really, uh, you know, really repped it. It's what we do. (laughs) It's what we do. And then of course we saw each other at a fashion week (laughs) where a bunch of models had uh, like cell phone mouthpieces at the keen key show. (laughs) So trippy. The pre-mask, you know. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It's so funny how fashion sometimes can be like sci-fi. Just Really yeah. good fashion predicts the future. For sure. Like kitsch, but like good kitsch. Yes. Yeah. Like club kid. And I want to talk about like the Asian rave scene. And I know uh, that you're a part of too. So. Talk about it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, speaking of club kids, you know, that's, that's I feel like an era that defines New York, <laughs> you know. And now we're doing this cool thing where we get to define New York. You right. know, especially post-pandemic, we get to rebuild what is nightlife, you know, what is community. It's kind of exciting. I don't, you know, I don't know if you've walked around the streets in Brooklyn recently, but it's like a block party, you know, it's like everybody, yeah, yeah, everybody survived the end of the world and (laughs) we're still here. It's like, it's like low budget Mardi Gras every night. It is. When I'm walking down, well, I, um, by Graham Ave, 
uh, over in East Williamsburg. And if I walk down like Myrtle or something, you know, walking by like Mood Ring, I'm just like, oh yeah, it's just big energy over there. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to talk about early days back in the West Coast. Um, just get a sense of, you know, how your upbringing, uh, growing up in a, in a Philippine ex household and also, you know, how, how that's informed your creativity today, because I think you're uh, an artist that puts identity first, it seems. So I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything, you know, it's so funny because when you're growing up, you just assume that everyone, at least this is what I did. I assumed that everybody had the same experience as me. I was like, everyone knows what spam and eggs is. (laughs) Everyone knows what a pandesal is. And I had no idea. And, you know, I really understood that when I went to school, you know, and I went to school and I looked around and I was like, wow, I'm in this Catholic, you know, junior high and I'm the only Asian in the class, you know. Um, my parents ran the Asian food booth at our yearly carnivals, which were like, you know, the, school, the, the little school would put on a carnival and it would draw a bunch of people to the school. And um, in that process, they would kind of raise money for the parish. And that was sort of the, the good Catholic thing to do. And so my parents, they ran the Asian food booth. And for a lot of families, especially, you know, Caucasian families, they had never had real homestyle Asian food before. And so the trick and the joke was is that it wasn't the Asian food booth. It was just all Filipino food. <laughs> <laughs> like they were like, people were like, oh, is this lo mein? And then my parents were like, it's fun sit, you know? <laughs> like just fully a different dish. And they right. were just like, this is Asian food. And it was all Filipino food. And so it was just my parents kind of single-handedly evangelizing within our community and, you know, and I watched them do this year after year after year. And they educated people. They told people, hey, this is what you're eating. This is longanisa. Longanisa is a Filipino sausage. I mean, it was amazing. And it was one of those things where you grow up and you see your parents kind of not be ashamed and not be afraid to talk about, hey, this is who we are. Even though, you know, at the end of the day, we were very brown faces in a very white place, you know? And that was, um, I think that was like what inspired me way later in life, you know, to make make art and make films about my identity and about, uh, you know, kind of also like educating people on mm. like, what does it mean to be Filipino American? What right. does it mean to be Asian American, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, cause also like I grew up like, you know, loving like the Rolling Stones and like, you know, listening to Blink-182, you know, like it was like the same, like this, you know, it's kind of almost a cliche at this point when you're, when you say things like, oh, I was like one foot in one world, one foot in the other. But that is really how I grew up. You know, I grew up with all of my friends being non-Asian. The only Asians I knew were my family, you know? So like I was the, at Asian, I was the token Asian in the group all the time. And so I didn't really understand what it meant to be part of a community until much later. Oh, um, so oh, that's interesting because I didn't have a lot of um, Asian friends until, I guess, high school. But even then, it was like a segment, smaller mm-hmm. group, mostly associated with an Asian club. Uh, but then yep. I, yeah, and then I joined a, a youth group um, in high school. And then I kind of, you know, got much more acclimated and like more uh, mm-hmm. in touch with my, my Asian-ness. Uh, but sounds like you had a, 
similar but different experience? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was like, you know, honestly, not until like way later, like after college even, oh, really? you know, and it was like during college, I would connect with people on like our love of music or like our Where'd love of Where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to, I went to two colleges. I started out at UC San Diego doing theater directing, and then I eventually transferred to UCLA for film. So uh, the cool part about that is like when I was at UC San Diego, I was on scholarship. So I never went to class and I just did a bunch of other stuff, <laughs> which was great <laughs> because all of the classes, uh, at least for freshman, I went to a super competitive high school. It was kind of like, um, a magnet school. Yeah, it was a magnet school. And also like the year, like our year, we sent six kids to Harvard. It was like one of those high schools where it was like a bunch of like super ambitious, um, kids who didn't have a ton of money went to this school learned a bunch, took all the AP classes, all the international baccalaureate classes. Their parents mostly didn't speak English. And some kids who had actually been sent from other countries to go to that high school as a funnel into Ivy Leagues. Like, it was crazy. It was, like, truly, you know, intense shit. And so that was, you know, kind of what I grew up with, with this just, like, cutthroat. So when I got to college, I was like, this is it? <laughs> you know, I was like, is this, this is all. And so that was, you know, that was what happened is I went to school and, uh, and then I realized I wanted to do stuff that was more interesting than school. Yeah. And that was, you know, writing, that was taking photos, that was directing, that was going to shows, you know, um, lots and lots of shows. So. And you were a big theater kid. I'm a big theater kid. I did musical theater. Um, it was just me and all the gays, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was in, uh, I worked in Broadway for a couple of years. What did you do in Broadway? That's crazy. I worked on the agency side. I worked at this agency called AKA. My my listeners know, because I've, I talk about Broadway actually a lot on the show. I love it. Wait, what's your favorite musical? Um, let's see. Mm, Motown. I I know it's cheesy to have, it's a jukebox musical, but. It's a beautiful I mean, story. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I did love. Let's see. What of Hamilton? Is it? It's. I know it's cheesy to. I know. I know. I know. I know. When I first saw it too, I was like. Oh. I know. Well, I I saw it on Thanksgiving uh, weekend. Um, you know, cried in the theater. Oh, uh, I cried in the theater. Yeah, and then yeah. when they put it out on Disney Plus and it comes out on July 4th, we was just traumatizing weekend. I think right now in 2020, I spent the whole weekend just crying, oh. watching Hamilton over and over just because any, like you yeah. want to hit all those, those immigrant, um, signs, like I'd, I'd, the tears just pour. So waterworks, waterworks for sure. So, Hamilton I saw in London, which was really funny to watch that very American musical in our former colonizers home. Right. <laughs> and, and I took my mom for her 60th <laughs> birthday and she didn't know until we were at the door. So it was like such a crazy surprise. We were basically like, oh, let's just take a walk around the theater district. And then we turned the corner and she's like, why are we in line? Can we go home? And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so she just sobbed through like the first half. Oh my God. She was so overcome. And my mom is the biggest theater person. So anyways. No, I love that. The King character. I'm wondering how that plays in the West End. I mean, it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious actually, because, you know, it was very like wink, wink, tongue in cheek kind of right. thing. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's really what shaped me growing up. It's like, I was a theater kid because of my mom. You know, I was a big music kid because of my dad. Mm. And my dad used to be in a band, um, true, true story, called Philip and the Pinos. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was that dad. <laughs> he had oh, a fro. Oh, my God. Wait, your dad's name is Philip. No. Oh. <laughs> That's the best part. Oh, my God. Literally, my dad is... He used to play guitar and harmonic at the same time. Oh, I my God. really, you know, took it all the way. Um, and it was, you know, honestly, it's so cool to have a dad who also at some point participated in the art scene. You right. know, he doesn't anymore, but, like, he remembers what it was like, you know? And right. I would fall asleep when I was a kid listening to his band practice in the living room. And that was a part of my story, you know, because you see a lot of Asian kids, especially kids that I went to, you know, high school with, and they're super talented, but their parents tell them, doctor, lawyer, engineer, that's all you've got. You know, those are your options. And my parents, you know, told me the same thing. But when I did eventually rebel, they, you know, were like, you do you, you know, live your life. And, um, you know, not without conflict, not without a lot of, are you sure you don't want to go to grad school? (laughs) Yeah. You know, like up until a few years ago. But finally, when it was Ulam, actually, when Mm. Ulam came out, that was when my career became real Mm. to them, I think, for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so see, that's interesting. I would, well, I, I want to investigate a bit more the rebellion piece because it sounds like your parents were pretty liberal uh, for Filipino parents and Asian parents in general. Mine are pretty mm-hmm. conservative growing up, but I had the benefit of being the youngest one. So by the time they got to oh, me. Oh, you were baby. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. My dad was just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm tired. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, he, I think he was completely exhausted by me. <laughs> Uh, so so it's all fine wait what exhausted him though i'm so curious oh what exhausted were you a bad asian i was a little bit of a bad asian (laughs) i was a good kid for a long time i you know i had really good grades and then in high school i just took a hard left turn (laughs) at some point i love it yeah where i i remember i lived a double life that was oh did you really was for me oh yeah i had great grades during the day and at night i was just a very bad asian (laughs) yeah well so yeah in high school i went through a physical transformation i lost 40 pounds in a summer what yeah so i i was a little bit on the heavier side when i was in high school and then i decided to change my life and just dedicate myself to physical fitness and then i never stopped and then after that, I started picking up um, b-boying, started dancing. This all of a sudden, my nights were spoken for, and I that wasn't was and I wasn't an athlete per se. Mm-hmm. But I was just hanging out with my dumb friends and you know going to the Bronx just to you know go to random b-boy jams. That's uh, awesome! I yeah. love that. Yeah, so I started entering like a interesting club scene, house dancing scene, um, late nineties. Amazing. That's dope. Yeah, and I haven't quite left. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why would you, you know? (laughs) That's so cool. And, and, you know, and for me, it was all, like, you know, same thing. Like, me running around with a bunch of friends, you know, going to shows, sneaking into places, you know? It, it 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 was that world of, like, you know, you were one person at home, and you were one person outside of that. Yeah. And that was when I feel like this like duality kind of entered my life. And it's the same thing, you know, honestly never really stopped. 
I mean, I think in some ways, like me making films, um, to get a little confessional, but I think making, me making films is, you know, me trying to figure out who I am in some ways, you know, figure out like, well, where do all these identities intersect? You know, like I made my first film about Filipino food, but honestly, that was the hook. You know, the reality is we get to talk about, uh, you know, the diaspora. We get to talk about what it means to even be Filipino American. What is that identity? And also like the intergenerational shit, you mm -hmm. know, honestly, like all the conflict, all of the fights, all of the rebellion. We talk about all of that, but within this very user-friendly topic of a food documentary. Yeah. You well, know? talk me through the the process of the creation of Ulam because it like Filipino food is very specific, and you have you know you have a jeepney in there, you have egg slut in yeah. there, you have uh, you have like really like the the top of the rungs of Filipino cuisine, um, especially here in New York. And, you know, you, it, it's a film that, that feels both connected, part of a community, um, but also extremely elevated and, and shooting food is very specific. So uh, I'd just love to know how that process came about. Oh man, it was a journey. It was a journey. It, you know, it started out with me um, falling in love with New York. That's really what happened is I came to New York for a job. Uh, it was a crazy job. I was George Clooney's assistant um, on a movie. <laughs> Wait, was, what movie? What movie? Uh, it was a crazy movie. It was called Money Monster. It was directed by Jodie Foster and it starred Julia Roberts and George Clooney. And I was George's on set person for the duration of the filming. And I flew to New York for it. Um, and my big goal was to actually work with a cinematographer who is a very famous Filipino DP uh, by the name of Maddie Lubatike. And he shot such uh, little known films as A Star is Born and Straight Out of Compton. And, you know, I mean, truly prolific. Uh, he did oh, Requiem for a Dream, Iron Man. I mean, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> and I just wanted to watch him work. And I was like, you know, I've never been an actor's assistant before, but let's try it for a few months. Why not? I get to go to New York and work. Why not? So I did it. And I, you know, New York is magic, as you right. know. But that was my first real entry point. Like, you go to a place that you don't think you could ever be a part of because it's so big and it's so crazy and it's so different. And then you just fall in love with it. And that was my love affair with New York. So after that, I was like, I got to do something here. You know, I knew I was going to do something. Wait, that I hold could. on. I would just want to investigate yeah. the George Clooney, Jodie Foster <laughs> of it all. What, what do you learn on set? from a George Clooney and a Jodie Foster? Like what, it must be a wealth of information and just learning through osmosis. What are you seeing and what are you feeling, hearing? I mean, it was incredible. It was the first time that I had worked with, with a high profile celebrity in that way, uh, which meaning every day, very closely, you know each other's moods. <laughs> You know, like, it's like, you're their person. And so um, it was really interesting to see, honestly, the rhythm of a set like that, because all of these people are at the top of their game. You know, everyone's the most professional, the most professional. And we were making a very serious, 
you know, kind of thrillery film about, you know, uh, George Clooney's character gets taken hostage on Wall Street. So, you know, we get to close down Wall Street. I mean, it was like an insane introduction to New York City because we got to shoot in some of the most iconic locations. And because of the clout and the talent involved, we got to really take those over. So that, like, that experience of seeing what New York looks like from the inside, that was invaluable. And I think even the process of filming in New York is so different than filming in LA. You know, it's a, everyone knows, New York's a tough city. It's a tough city to do anything. You know, any business, restaurant, movie, whatever it is, it's hard. You're shooting in the snow. (laughs) You know, at some point, I remember one day we were uh, on Long Island and we were on an airport tarmac and the tarmac, it was so cold, the tarmac froze, like the ground froze. (laughs) And we had to wait for it to get warmer and for us to de-ice and defreeze the tarmac for the plane shot. I mean, it was crazy. It's like things like that when you realize just like the endurance that New York City crews go through and you saw it affect everyone. You know, you saw it affect George, Julia, you know, everybody. Um, But I think if anything, I learned that in spite of that, there's a way to handle conflict and there's a way to handle pressure. And if you can be graceful under pressure, then you can do anything. Yeah, totally. The city's definitely trying to kill you at all times. <laughs> it Pre-COVID, is. yeah. It is, it is. Every day, still, every day. Um, but so yeah, yeah it was wild. Yeah. Ulam. I mean, it was crazy. So I, the, the reason I tell that story is because I met my cinematographer on that show. Um, he was actually in the camera department working under, you know, my film school hero, Maddie, and he was the other Filipino... <laughs> on the job because of course there were only three of us me maddie libertike and this guy named john floresca um and you know i met him because he offered me food uh as you do and uh, he offered me shopao and i was like yes i would like some shopao <laughs> so we shared some shopao and he was like i see you're filipino and i was like i see you are too and he was like let's go get some pizza and i was like great <laughs> Like, oh, you're, you're not shocked by the by the softness of this dough. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> immediate friendship. <laughs> immediate. And he was like, ah, I'm on SNL next week, but you know, you want to come by and say hey. And so we became friends and you know, and he's an amazing DP. And I pitched him the idea for this movie and he was like, When do we start? I pitched every chef. It was crazy. I would find them when they did public events, pop-ups, you know, and go and pitch in person. I had no company backing me. (laughs) That was always the first question, like, oh, what production company is this with? And I was like, no one. It's me. It's independent. We're raising the money through small grants and Mm. individual donations. We paired with, you know, a nonprofit, which had 501C, you know, 5013C status so that we could have, you know, it'd be tax deductible. I mean, we did it indie. It was indie. It was a shoestring budget and we ran out of money about 10 times. And, uh, at some point we were two and a half years into shooting and I turned to my DP and I was like, Johnny, I don't know if we're going to be done. This is crazy. You know, we keep running out of money. I'm like working jobs until I can shoot again. And then I quit the job. I mean, it was insane. It was, you know, crazy days. We're pulling all the favors we can, getting all this equipment for free just for the love of it. 
working around chefs' schedules. And chefs are the busiest people on the planet because their day doesn't start at 6 a.m. Their day starts at 4. And their day ends at midnight or 1. It all depends on the hours of the restaurant. So, you know, it's like if they're available, they're available. And then you do it that day. <laughs> you know, so it was crazy. It was like so hard to plan. And so at some point I was like, Johnny, I don't think this is going to get done. I think I'm giving up. I think I'm going to quit the industry. And he was like, what? You can't quit the industry. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I'm cut out. I don't think I'm going to be a director. I think it's over. You know, just really panicking because I had put a bunch of my own savings into this. And, you know, at some point, you know, you kind of think I got to throw in the towel because how are we ever going to have the money to finish post? Right. Well, so and, what turned it around for you? Well, he was like, put something out, put a trailer out, put something out, show people your work. No one has seen what you've been doing. You must feel like, you must feel like Stanley Kubrick at some oh, yeah. point. Just shooting, yeah, shooting just for shooting years on forever. end. Yeah. <laughs> forever. And you're just like, is this, am I even, have I, I been deluded like, myself? You know, know. you feel crazy. Because you keep telling people, this movie, this movie that's going to come out, I swear to God, and it's just never coming out and your family thinks you're crazy. Anyways, so I put a trailer out. I was like, okay, Johnny, I'm going to do this for you. I cut a trailer. I put it on Facebook. Nothing happens. My aunt in the Philippines is like, hey, can you make this public? I want to share it with your cousins. I was like, all right, cool. Go to sleep, wake up, open up Facebook, 10,000 views on the trailer. And I was like, this is, I refreshed it. I was like, this is. Organically. Yeah, I was like, this is wrong. Something happened. And I guess my aunt shared it. She's a former beauty queen. Turns out she's all these fancy friends who shared it. And it went viral in the Philippines. And literally, it was like the next week, another 10, another 10, another 10. It got to 100,000 views. And then Eater LA picked it up because all the Filipinos in Manila had shared it with their family in the States. And there's such a huge Filipino community in LA. Eater LA picked it up and was like, we can't wait for this Filipino food movie. And I was like, oh, what is happening? And that article got like 1 million impressions. <laughs> and I was like, something's going on. Like, I don't know what's happening, but the media machine has taken it. And then literally a week after the Eater article, I get a call in my phone. And it's from a 310 number and I pick it up and it's the LA times mm. and the LA times was like, Hey, so I don't know if you know this, but we're doing a thing this year with Jonathan gold. And I was like, Oh yeah, Jonathan gold, the Pulitzer prize winning food critic at the LA times. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jonathan gold wants to premiere your movie. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> Better get to editing soon. Uh, right, exactly. And I was like, I was like, what movie? <laughs> you know? And it was just this insane thing where he was promoting Filipino food at that time. And the timing was right. He saw the trailer. He loved it. And he was like, here's the plan. We're going to rent out Grand Central Market, which is the equivalent of Chelsea Market in L.A., we're going to have Filipino food pop-ups in every stall. We're going to rent. The LA Times will pay to rent the theater next door. We will do a preview screening of your film. We are paying for all of it. All you need to do is show up with a movie. And I was like, when? 
And they were like, in three months. And I was like, do you need to see a screener beforehand? They were like, nah, we trust you. Whoa. That's great. It changed changed the entire trajectory of the film. I was able to go back to the investors and say, Jonathan Gold wants to do this. Give us more money. We raised the rest of the money. We finished the film. We went to festival. We were the first film to sell. That's amazing. (laughs) Wow, what a great story. That is real life. You can't make that shit up. No, you can't. It's also also because it's so personal. And then at the end of the day, it was your Tita that hooked it up. Oh, you know, (laughs) it's always the Tita who's just just like, "Uh, can you, you know, (laughs) you know. So when the so the movie comes out and. It, it it's a great film. I I really truly encourage all the listeners to to watch it. It's uh, I mean obviously it, it's special to me because I am Filipino and it kind of hits me at uh, home like in so many ways. And also because I ate a jeep, I ate jeepney like two weeks ago in the heart uh, and in the stomach. You know, yeah, hits ex- you there <laughs> exactly one thousand percent. And but it, it's the uh, the specifics of shooting food. It, it, there's a very technical aspect to that that I don't think a lot of people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, is that something that you were uh, attuned to already? Did you already have that technical knowledge, or is this we, something you had to learn on set? We learned. We learned on the job. I mean, I had been at that point working in film for like maybe six years already. So I had been on a bunch of sets, but it was my first time shooting food that intensively. And on top of that, it was very unlike how other food shows work, where they set up the food and have a shoot specifically for that. We were shooting in a live kitchen, which meant that we were filming dishes as they were coming out on the line. So there was no second take. It was just, you get the dish or you don't. (laughs) (laughs) or you wait for it to come around again. And so it was just a crazy, we filmed a lot of live events. It was very much more like what I would imagine filming. Well, now that I've done it, it's more like filming a concert, you know, or filming a live performance because that's how the kitchen feels. It's constant action, constant, you know, flame people like dealing with, you know, hot items so fast. Like everything is just rapid fire and everyone is just full concentration. And that was the coolest part about working on the movie was you get to see the art of food as it's being prepared right in front of your eyes. And then you get to eat it at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Chefs are like athletes seeing them do the thing. It's so dope. I recently had, I recently had, um, uh, a chef in my apartment, uh, Chef Harold, uh, and he, we shot some content here and he, he, I was watching him do food prep, but he did the thing where he, he did it twice. He did it one where we didn't explain or it was like a shared experience and then he had to do it again uh, to just get all the B-roll and like, you know, some second mm-hmm. unit stuff. I was just like, wow, he's so fast the second time when I'm not fucking <laughs> him up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And it's like, uh, um, it's like watching a really good bartender. There's yeah. a flow. You know, there's a flow, especially in tight kitchen spaces. It's like you see a chef and they move like, like it's like water. They know where everything is. Every, every inch of space has been accounted for. It's, it's honestly, it's magic. It's really fun. It's, it was a really fun movie to shoot. And so it's cool because, you know, 
I have a book out now yes. <laughs> based on, um, you know, honestly, my relationships from that movie. So, you know, Alvin Kylon, who is an awesome chef, uh, he is the owner and creator of Egg Slut, uh, which is a very big uh, restaurant in LA and is now all over the world. They're in, uh, you know, Las Vegas, they're in Lebanon. It's, you know, it's a really amazing um, thing he's achieved. And so Alvin and I put out a book called Amboy, uh, Recipes from the Filipino-American Dream. Still can't believe they used my title. And <laughs> uh, can, you, can you explain uh, what Amboy yes. means? Yes, yes. Okay, so for for the non-Phil Ams, uh, Amboy is something that you were called, um, if you went back as an American kid to the Philippines, uh, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's a nickname, but it's also like a low-key insult. Like, yeah. oh, you're such an Amboy. It's you a know? pejorative. Exactly, exactly. Like, you can tell that you're not from here because of your right. shoes, because of the way you walk, the way you dress, your accent, you know? And that was our experience. He was an Amboy and I was an Am girl because I would go back and visit my family in the Philippines and it was like I wasn't even from there. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was, a, I was as American as, you know, a, a, a blue-eyed blonde, you know? And that <laughs> was so funny to them. They would make fun of my accent, you know? And, and that was such a funny thing because I would be in Orange County and people would say, how are you from Orange County? You don't look like you're from Orange County, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, I would have these interactions in Orange County where people would be like, Oh, your English is so great. And I was like, like Oh, microaggression. But, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you have these experiences, uh, growing up and you realize that, um, American really has still looked one way to so many people for so long. And so it's about time we change that. Uh, I think the film covers some really interesting, amazing stuff. I just want to cover a couple more things. I do want to talk about the book because that is out now. I think that just released, right? Yes. Yeah. We just dropped last month. Nice. Nice. And we'll plug it at the end too. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 something in the film that's covered, I think Alvin might say it, or maybe Nicole from GP says, it's like talk about the chip on your shoulder. Yes. Uh, and also, the, you know, that, that the driving force, the, the chip on your shoulder. And I think a lot of people in the creative space have that driving force. I think it is a bit you uh, unique to the, the Philippine X identity, but in mm-hmm. relation to the larger Asian diaspora, mm-hmm. uh, because of the international, the interagional relationships amongst all yeah. the countries. I, it's a similar situation, like even in the West Indies and the competition amongst the mm-hmm. islands mm-hmm. Um, and the Filipinos back home or, you know, a lot of times they're, they're overseas workers that have to leave home and, mm-hmm. you know, that don't come back for decades because they have to send money back. There is that bit of a brain drain, yes. not epidemic per se, but it just, it is what it is. It's a, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm using like Trump words right now. <laughs> no, but I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Honestly, my own family was a part of, Yeah, you know, my parents left the Philippines because of Marcos. You know, my mom was an activist who was getting arrested protesting Marcos and it, it wasn't safe for her to be there anymore. Yeah. You know, she has friends whose parents were disappeared, whose parents were executed um, in public, 
you know, I mean, it was a really intense time. And, you know, my dad followed my mom to America. You know, he did that very romantic thing where he played in cafes and saved up money for the plane tickets to visit, you know, and that was my parents' love story. It was a story that was told because of, you know, war and politics and conflict, you know, and and that is, I think, so indicative to how I was raised, because even though my parents are still immigrants, my parents are still conservative in many ways, they also rebelled at some point, you know? And I think that that spirit of activism lies within me. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I stand on my parents' shoulders, you know? We all stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. At the end of the day, it's, you know, what they accomplished that allows us to be who we are. You know, what my parents did coming here to the U.S. has allowed me to be the artist I am today. Because honestly, right now, the Philippines is going through another version of this. Um, right. Yeah. The junk terror bill, which is uh, for the listeners, it allows the government under President uh, Duterte to recontextualize what it means to be a terrorist in any way, in any way. Um, so anyone that even speaks ill of the government, which is highly subjective to you know, be saying certain things on like, let's say, social media, whatever, uh, they can find you, come for you and they can end your life. Literally. So literally, it's a big thing. And um, and it's it's so interesting to kind of see these, uh, you know, sort of people rise to power again. It feels a little bit like history repeating itself. And I hope it's not. I really hope it's not. But um, it is really interesting. So, yeah, that's part of the story. You got us, you got you, me, and we got that fly on (laughs) Tracy's head yesterday. (laughs) Holding it down. Yes. (laughs) The resistance. Oh my God. Um, So I want to talk about dancing on my own. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is the latest. Again, you know, all my films are me trying to figure out who I am. Dancing on my own is the latest iteration of that. So apart from being Filipino and obviously really into food, um, I also am, uh, you know, very much a proud member of the queer community. And so I, um, I identify as queer, um, which is an umbrella term um, for me that it means I'm attracted to, you know, kind of um, other people, other souls, and gender is kind of a non-issue for me. Um, so that's me. That's what I do, um, part of my life. And part of my story is finding that community and finding that chosen family in New York. And that family uh, is part of this group called Bubble Tea. And so Bubble Tea, for people who don't know, is uh, what I'm so proud to say is the biggest Asian rave in New York City. Um, It's fucking bomb. (laughs) It's the best party ever. Uh, obviously, I'm biased. Um, but Where did they have those parties? Where were they? Oh, my gosh. I know, right? Pre-pandemic. Where were we? Um, we were all over. We did a bunch, mostly in Brooklyn, um, but a few in the city as well. Uh, everywhere from MoMA PS1 mm-hmm. to elsewhere in Bushwick to uh, Asia Society in Manhattan, you know, uh, to The Standard, um, you know, on the west side. Like, honestly, it's been everywhere. They pop up 
uh, every, it used to be every few months. And at some point it became like almost every month, which was amazing. And so, you know, Bubble Tea was founded by five incredible human beings uh, who I'm so lucky to call my friends now. Um, they were really pioneers in the nightlife scene. And their goal was to center Asian Americans in nightlife, like really carve out a space for us. And they were founded post-election, um, you know, really out of this need, I think, and this longing for a safe space and a community, uh, especially in a world that you know, really felt then and still feels now, frankly, um, like it's not that interested in uh, representing everyone equally. So that's how Bubble Tea was founded. Uh, it's not necessarily an activist party, but now that you know the backstory, you kind of see right. where the leanings are. Um, but well, partying and yeah. activism are so closely aligned. It's hard I mean, to really separate that. <laughs> it's, I mean, but you know, it's cool because it's world building. That's really what it is at the end of the day. And that's what's so fun for me as an artist and as a director is I get to help build this world. And so the world is a four-story rave. You know, the world is drag queens in six-inch heels uh, who call themselves Slasians, <laughs> you know? Like, what a cool fucking world. And that is the world that I'm so proud to be part of. And so that's the world that this film that I just made is about. So it was funded by this company, Visco. Some of you know them for the Visco Girl movement. Um, but they also did this really awesome grant program. And that grant program funded the film. And basically they were like, okay, cool, go make a film about your community. Great. So I went and done. I was like, done. I was, I was like, my community, you mean I could make a film about Asian drag queens? They were like, yes. I was like, great. So that was the pitch process. So it was initially supposed to be a film about just Bubble Tea stray documentary. And as I was going through it and showing them footage, they were like, so you keep saying that this party has changed your life. I was like, yes, it has. It really showed me that we are strong. We are a community. I'm not the only one. And uh, this group of people has my back, you know? And so they were like, okay, great. So how come you're not in the movie? <laughs> and I, uh, I was shook. I was like, I have no answer for that. I'm not an actor. And they said, it's a documentary. You don't have to act. Why aren't you in it? telling your story. Your story is part of the story. And, and what, that was, what was your response to that? I mean, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to do it. I uh, have always been a behind the camera person. And I thought, I, I don't know why I have to, it was very difficult, honestly, to reckon with the idea that um, as a filmmaker and as an artist, your point of view is also part of it. I think I had grown up in this weird old school belief that you make the art, you put the art out there and you let it speak for itself. And I realize now that we've moved kind of into a world that's different where, you know, your art is your work and your work is your life. And it kind of all is intertwined in this very real way. And so I said, okay, let's see what this would be like. And so I was happening to visit my parents that weekend and as part of the story, my parents, uh, specifically my mom, had never really been okay with my sexuality uh, growing up. And so 
the, my coming out story was I came out to my mom when I was like 15 and a half. She was teaching me to drive. I nearly crashed the car. We were having an argument. And I said, also, I enjoy, uh, you know, everyone. And she was like, what does that mean? And I was like, I like women too. And (laughs) we basically like, it was like panic screaming, nearly dying in a car crash. Like it it was, it was (laughs) looking back. It's hilarious. But (laughs) at the time I was like, my life is ending. And my mom, didn't talk to me for a while mm-hmm. and we never talked about it again like it was like almost yeah. like it didn't happen asian and parent it, denial it's classic exactly asian parent denial and so that persisted for like a decade uh, really up until i made this film and so i brought the pitch for the film home and i in the pitch i discussed coming out with my mom and i you know i discussed all these things that strangely i was okay to discuss with with perfect strangers, but I wasn't okay to discuss with my own parent. And so I brought that home and she read the pitch Mm. and I was like, so nervous. I can't tell you. I was like, is this it? Is this the end of my relationship with my mom? And she read it and turned to me and was like, Hey, I had no idea that you felt this way. And I am so sorry. And I will always love you. And I will be in your film. And I was like, you know, it was a jaw drop moment. Yeah. And that was the beginning of us healing our relationship. And so in the process of making the film, we talked about this for the first time. She apologizes to me on camera. I mean, for an Asian kid, that's a lot. You don't think you're ever going to get that from your parents. And you know, it's a lot too, because she comes from a different country. She comes from a different place. The Philippines is still like 90% Catholic. It's very conservative. It's the only place outside of the Vatican that doesn't allow divorce or reals (laughs) to this day. You have to get an annulment. There's no such thing as divorce in the Philippines. So it's, it's very different. And to see my own mom come from that place and meet me in the middle, that was it. And so that's the story at the heart of Dancing on My Own is it's a movie about bubble tea, but it's really a movie about the experience of trying to merge all your identities. And so I'm in it as well as bubble tea, as well as a bunch of people from the community and my mom's in it and you get to see the house I grew up in. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And we're so lucky, you know, we, we got into a bunch of festivals. So, um, I mean, I can, I can mention a few. I know we're going to be playing at New Fest this year in New York, which is um, amazing. It's like the New York LGBT Film Festival. We're playing uh, at Asian American uh, International right now, also in New York. Uh, a few others. Uh, we're doing Hawaii, L.A., uh, San Francisco. <laughs> it's like we're really, you know, everywhere Asians are. We are also. Uh, <laughs> Asians are. <laughs> yes, yes. And so it's neat to see the film be embraced by all these communities, especially because we can't go out right now. Right. We can't experience a queer Asian rave or a dance party or even see our community. So it's cool because the film initially was just a celebration of the community, but now it's like a permanent reminder that we built something dope. 
Right. So I'm going to talk about representation for a hot second because I think historically speaking, you know, Asians haven't always given the been given the time in front of the camera, and you know that goes without saying, especially when it comes to being the the main character at the forefront. Um, but now there's there's an opportunity yes. for nuance and also an opportunity to to dissect identity and allow for the space of uh, you know of a spectrum of identities now. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think the new opportunities are, are coming down the pike? Because from everything to Asian queerness, to Asian masculinity, to mm-hmm. you know uh, Asian success being depicted on screen, uh, and also Asian uh, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm really uh, interested in the movie uh, Lingua Franca. Um, yes, by yeah. Isabel. Yes. Yes. I, I, her, I don't know. I know um, the producer, uh, Jet Tolentino. Uh, we're oh, cool. friendly. Yeah. So, yeah, seeing seeing that spectrum, you know, fills my heart. What, what do you think is coming down the pike if you have to forecast new stuff? Honestly, I think it's all of us. (laughs) It's all of us because, you know, the really cool part about working in film and television right now is people. And by people, I mean primarily Caucasian executives are finally, for the first time, and I think this is truly because of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's truly because of the work that's already been done with racial justice and specifically restorative, you know, like racial justice and really looking at systemic prejudice. I mean, that has purely come, I think, from the Black Lives Matter movement. And that has sent a wave of reckoning through every industry. And that includes film and television. And I am so glad it is about time. And I think for me, I see it in my life. I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful, you know, to say I just signed with CAA. Right. Um, oh, congratulations. I, I mean, I, I saw <laughs> that on your blurb. I was like, whoa. It's crazy. Um, I just directed Meryl Streep uh, in a show for NBC. I mean, all of these people who I think in the past would not have taken a risk on me. In fact, the fact that I'm seen as risky after having a film on Hulu and a book out and a few other great projects in the works is, I think, testament to how far our industry still needs to come, right? But the fact that, like, I am getting these opportunities, Isabel is getting these opportunities, you know, my friend Diane Paragas is, uh, has a new movie out this weekend. It is going to be the first Filipino-American film to be distributed by a major studio. That is historic, and it is called Yellow Rose, and it is awesome, and you should watch it. Uh, it has a Broadway favorite, Ava Noblezada, in it, um, who uh, was just nominated for a Tony for Hadestown. Um, it has Leia Salonga, our queen, um, <laughs> the OG Filipino <laughs> Revenant, yeah. Disney princess, you know. Yeah, if, you were, if you weren't singing On My Own from Les Miserables, when you were a kid, it's like, who were you? I was. <laughs> I was that person. And, you know, and, and right, obviously, Layman's Rob, but also, like, she was our Asian Disney princess, you know? Yeah. She was Mulan. Mulan. <laughs> she and was it. She was know? the voice of, a, of another Disney princess, wasn't she? Was she, she was Jasmine, too. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And Donny Osmond was the voice, voice of uh, Shang. I mean, <laughs> that's right. You, you sometimes you you get a win, and sometimes you get a L, but it's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but what I'm saying is, it's like 
it's us. That's yeah. what's so cool to realize, you know? And it's like, we are finally getting these opportunities. And like with every project, I think all of us are very aware of our ability to kind of center these narratives and to center our narratives and to, to really, you know, the, the, I feel like the thing that's been frustrating for such a long time is when people say, Oh, I want to hire a female director. I just don't know any, or I want to have an Asian person in the lead, but there aren't really any Asian celebrities. And I hear these excuses because that's what they are excuses. And the reality is, is, there isn't a female director until you hire one. There isn't an Asian celebrity until you make one. That's how any of these things have been made. Power is never given, it is taken. And that is something that I've realized when I walk into a room for the very first time, I really do believe that my voice is an asset, not a detriment. I am not being asked to hide the fact that I am Asian American, I am queer, I am a woman. These things are being asked for, for the first time ever, and that gives me hope. Because in spite of everything, if we can still, as a society, say, hey, we've been fucking up, <laughs> and we can say, we can get better, and here's how we do it, that's it. You know, it's that and the tick, you know, the teenagers on, uh, on TikTok. Those are the things that give me hope, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the teens that, uh, that, you know, Rick rolled president. Yeah. Trump. <laughs> you know, that, that's, um, exactly. There are only two types of activists. There are the ones that are, you know, fucking everything up. Um, and also they're the TikTokers. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about as we're winding down, uh, all I want is everything. Yes, yeah, let's, let's I talk love about that. that. Yeah, so yes. it, that seems like it's it's springing from dancing on my own a little bit, yes. or it's a little, a little. Yeah. So, so that's a, a fun project. That was my quarantine project, actually. Um, and the funny story there is that quarantine project got me an agent at CAA. So, uh, dream big and do things outside of baking bread is. Uh, <laughs> No, but I mean, you know, that's, that's what happened is I was, you know, driving myself crazy baking bread and I was like, I can't just do this. <laughs> oh my God. I just bought gibbets for my Crocs today. <laughs> that's my version of baking bread. <laughs> oh my God. I see the sneaker wall behind you. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm experimenting a lot right now. <laughs> you know, aren't we all, aren't we all? And so, you know, I was like, this is crazy because all my shows, everything I was working on got put on hold you know, like everybody else, right? Everybody was like, oh, 2020 is going to be such a big year. And then suddenly everyone was out of work at once and all of these industries were shut down. So I was like, oh, shit, what do I do? And so what I did was I wrote because I was like, what can I do in a room by myself with some note cards? And I wrote a TV show. And that TV show was called All I Want Is Everything. Mm -hmm. And um, I can talk a little bit about it, but the exciting thing is that we now have a really cool production company attached to it uh, that wants to produce it. And um, we are sending it around and starting that development process. But um, it's, it's basically like, did you watch that show Euphoria? Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure you've seen Breaking Bad. Of course. Yes. So it's like those two things had a baby and it was Asian. Oh, so there's meth and really dope eye makeup? Is that what's happened? <laughs> I mean, um, it is a, it is a, a, what I call a coming-of-age adventure um, set in the underground Asian rave scene. And so it is actually a coming-of-age adventure and a coming-of-age crime drama. Oh. So, so that's what I can tell you now. Um, but it I is, love that. 
a pretty much all Asian cast. And um, we will see if anyone is interested. Um, and the cool thing is uh, we already have a few people interested. So stay tuned for more. I can't talk too much about it because I don't want to give anything away. Um, but it, it's another attempt to, you know, really put our stories on the screen. And the cool part about it is uh, my goal is to really do a for us, by us kind of thing and uh, really cast people from the community, highlight people who are already doing this work and uh, bring all Asians together. Um, because I think that is something that our community needs. Uh, as different as we are, I believe we do have a lot in common um, as Asian Americans. And I think that is a really cool part about what it means to be Asian American, is I think that whether, you know, you're Chinese or Japanese, I'm Filipino, I'm Thai, you know what I mean? Like we all have something in common and that's what it feels like to grow up on the outside. Yeah. Looking uh, in. And I think that um, that outsider's perspective is something that's historically been celebrated in film. And I think this time we can just do it with uh, an Asian face and some glitter eye makeup. So <laughs> I love that. Well, if you need an Asian guy to crack some glow sticks on set for you. As we're winding down, I would love to just talk a little bit more about the book because that is available yes. now. Just, you know, just let us know more about it and where can we find it? Amboy yes. Recipes from the Filipino American Dream. Yes, Amboy Recipes from the Filipino American Dream is available uh, on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Can't believe I can say that, um, but it's it's really dope. It's all about what it means to be Filipino American, which for me and Alvin meant uh, being latchkey kids, going to Costco a bunch, and uh, really, it's a it's a cool fusion between what I would call like more traditional Filipino recipes and um, you know really fun things like you know mac and cheese lumpia and uh you know uh, the house made you know pandasal and uh you know hot silog which is hot dog silog <laughs> and uh even some crazy recipes like a seven day lechon recipe <laughs> a so, seven day lechon seven recipe days and we include how to build the fire pit to make it oh wow so what it's Wild. What does that ingredients list look like? It's like one big oh, ass there's pig. A build, there's a build list. Oh, wow. <laughs> you get to go to Home Depot if you want. Huh. <laughs> yeah, but also, and you know, it's fun. It's it's a crazy <laughs> book. Please, please, like, feel free to like check it out. Um, you know, it's it's definitely on you know Huston Mifflin's website. But if you go to my website, you'll see it too. That's uh, www.alexandracuerdo.com and of course if you want to follow any exciting updates and eventually see a picture of me geeking out with Meryl Streep um, that will also be on my Instagram <laughs> at alexandracuerdo and you know honestly for me I feel like if there's one takeaway from if you listened all the way to the end of this interview it's uh, you know like be open, I guess. Be open to different perspectives in your media. I feel like it makes us all better and it challenges us all more. And uh, at the end of the day, we just learn more about each other. You know, if you and I can connect as humans, um, then maybe 2020 isn't so messed up after all. Yeah. Give us one anecdote about Meryl Streep. <laughs> as an outro. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Meryl, one take Meryl is all I have to say. She is a super class act. Um, she solves your problems before you even realize them. Uh, and at one point I did use the words action Meryl just so I could feel like Steven Spielberg for one minute. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, it felt good. <laughs> I love that. Allie, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. We've rec- we're recording this a little bit late, but this is such a, a great conversation. We have to do this again. We, we got I to love it. I love it, dude. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, like, let's, let's do it again. This was great. Doing it again. Oh, when all I want is everything is out. We're going to do a follow-up. For reals, for sure. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Allie. Thanks. Thanks for listening. That was awesome. One take, Meryl. I'm totally not surprised. Um, hopefully, we'll get to have Allie back. Uh, in the meantime, you can find the First Generation Burn podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Thanks to Listening Party and Desgen team for their support. Don't forget to vote, everyone. November 3rd. Your life depends on it. Do it early. Be safe, everyone.